welcome to Did You Book a Room? A podcast all about what happens offstage, where the learning happens. Today I'm talking to composer, teacher, and pianist Dr. Jeff Junkinsmith. When I was about 16, 17, and at Shoreline Community College, Dr. J taught my music theory classes at a hearty 8.30 in the morning. There's nothing like some 12-tone serialism to wake you up. It's been great to reconnect and learn about his evolving relationship to piano and composition and how sometimes you can fake it until you make it. Dr. J, thanks so much for doing this. I'm really excited to- Yeah, I'm so happy to be here with you. Nice to see you again. Yeah, you too. Um, I'd just like to start off by asking you to tell us who you are and what you do. So uh, my name is Jeff Junkinsmith. and I teach music theory at uh, Shoreline Community College near Seattle, Washington. And um, I also have a side gig where I play piano for uh, dance classes and company classes at uh, Pacific Northwest Ballet. Awesome. So how did you get started playing piano and what was that early relationship like? Uh, Well, so I grew up in a house where my mom and my grandmother were both um, keyboard players. They were both church organists, uh, actually, but there was always a piano in the house. And I just remember from a very early age, I really wanted to do that. Um, And so my recollection is that I was about five years old and I told my mom I wanted to learn how to play the piano. Um, She told me to ask my grandmother. And uh, my grandmother said I had to wait until I was six years old. uh, Because at that time, they didn't teach you how to read in kindergarten. Uh, They didn't start reading until first grade and so uh, she couldn't conceive of teaching anybody who couldn't read so (laughs) so I had to wait until I was six so I I, you know I like to I like to think that I had my first piano lesson um, on my sixth birthday or somewhere near there Um, I was very excited Uh, I think it was fairly soon when I realized um, it wasn't all fun and games (laughs) and uh, and so then I went through several years with my with uh, the classic fighting with my mom about practicing every day. Um, And finally she let me quit when I was about nine or 10. And I immediately regretted it, um, but I couldn't admit it for another year or two. And then I started taking lessons again when I was about 12. So there we go. It's tough to to (laughs) swallow that pride and come back. Um, When you started with your grandmother, did you start uh, with reading music straight away or did you yeah yeah show us she that was uh, uh there was i just remember a book the, the mary bacon mason uh beginning book and there were uh there were little uh, um, pictures in the in the back that you could cut out and paste on the pages of the of various songs i don't they were like black and white reproductions of old paintings or something i don't remember exactly what they were but it would you know and there were stickers and i mean she would she would give me little stars you know if i i get a gold star if i if i played it well and silver it was pretty good and got a lot of colored stars i think that's classic <laughs> <laughs> and then you went on um after you came back to piano to study piano and composition in college right yeah so i took um i took piano lessons but around when i was about 11 or 12 um I really somehow um, I got it in my head. I really wanted to make my own music, mm-hmm. and um, I just uh, so I I was doing that uh, 
struggling to write write music down, which is very difficult. It's it's still not easy. <laughs> and uh, uh, I had a piano teacher who who my first composition I I wrote out. It was about I was about eleven years old, and then he copied it out in a lovely um, uh, fountain pen manuscript and. Then I was kind of hooked. You know, it's like, oh my God, to see it, to actually see it on paper. It's like this. I did this. Uh, so yeah, I, I studied composition in in college and in graduate school. I, I kept taking lessons, uh, mm-hmm. piano lessons in in college, but um, uh, that wasn't my it wasn't my main focus. That and was just I, kind of a. I, way to I, I just felt I, I needed to keep it going, and I did practice mm-hmm. three or three or four hours a day. Um, which is a luxury of being in college and not having to work during the week. I feel very lucky every day. Mm-hmm. And please indulge us. Can you tell us the story of your piano teacher in college? <laughs> it's a it's a famous story. So I, I had a um, I had a teacher who's she since passed away. Her name was Pat Thomas. And. Uh, Back in the 70s, you could uh, still smoke not only indoors, but in classrooms. And she would sit there and smoke in the, in the little piano studio while we were having our lesson. So I was, um, I, it, it seems to me it was some, some Debussy piece, a, 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 a Gardens in the Rain or something like that. And <clears throat> was sitting there smoking her cigarette, staring off into the middle distance. And she, uh, I finished playing. She blew out a big cloud of smoke and she said, you know, Jeff, you really can't play for shit, um, but you can, you can fake like anything. Um, I wish I could remember what my reaction was. I, I, don't, I, I think I was so dumbfounded um, that, that I, I didn't really say anything. I didn't ask for a clarification. Um, I mean, I think I know what she meant by that, which is that I was still kind of lazy about fingering. I was still kind of lazy about um, certain technical things I guess uh, the interesting thing is is that I went on later after after college I started playing for ballet classes and I've, I've made a good part of my living faking it <laughs> so to speak uh, but yeah she was uh, she was an interesting character a niche for everything yes exactly <laughs> um, so that's the famous story <laughs> It's a great one, honestly. And I don't, I don't know that you could get away with it now, but I'm, I'm pretty sure there are some equally harsh teachers. Well, you know what's funny about her, and it's like I, I, I do not remember her as being harsh. I, I remember her as being honest, and uh, uh, I remember actually going out for beers with her once or twice. <laughs> she was, she was actually kind of fun, uh, but she was. Uh, she was not afraid to say what she thought. Really honest. All right. <laughs> um, so how did you find yourself then after college in a ballet class? Uh, well, that's a, that's a good question. And it was now, um, um, well, it's, it was 1980. Um, I had just, I was just a, a year or two out of college. Um, I got married uh, for for the wrong reasons, but we were we were living in San Diego, and uh, I had a job. She was going to graduate school. I had a job, um, <clears throat> a church job, as a choir director and organist, uh, but it w- only paid about four hundred dollars a month. So I was I was looking for other work, and and 
uh, my wife at the time actually found a, a, a little ad in the Penny Saver, uh, which I don't think they have that anymore, but it was, it was just like a little sort of throwaway free paper that had classified ads. And there was a little ballet school in San Diego called California Ballet that was looking for uh, pianists to play for classes. And I had never even seen a ballet class, let alone have any idea how that worked. So um, she said, you should do this. So I, I got an appointment and, wa and walked in with a, a stack of classical music, um, you know, Bach and uh, Beethoven and whatever, and soon discovered that none of it would work because um, ballet classes are set up, the exercises are set up so that everything has to be in uh, very symmetrical um, uh, 16 bar periods, uh, 32, you know, everything is very, you know, eight bars of this and then eight bars of that, eight bars of this, eight bars of that. And um, oddly, very little of the music that I had brought with me worked that way. So from day one, I had to m improvise. And it was, uh, it wasn't that I hadn't done a lot of improvisation before. I mean, I just noodling around, you know, I hadn't had to do anything that was specifically um, uh, structured. So anyway, uh, <laughs> I did that for a few years and then we went off to graduate school in Iowa uh, and, uh, and I was thinking I need, to get, I need to get higher degrees so I can do something other than play ballet classes. So um, I did finally get to do something other than play ballet classes, which is to teach, which is great, uh, but I'm still playing ballet classes 40 years later. So. Sometimes you just kind of find what you do, and that's what you do. Well, you're, you're very good at it at this point. Thank you. And about 15 years ago, is it, you decided to get a bit more serious about piano? Well, what happened was, so I, for years, I was, I was really, um, I don't know exactly how to, enthusiastic about, about composing. And mm. um, I made a lot of choral music and uh, a, a few other pieces that were more or less uh, successful. Um, but at some point in around 2005, I just kind of uh, lost the spark. I just kind mm. of, it wasn't, uh, I mean, for one thing, it, it's difficult to compose when, when most of the time you don't get the music performed. Yeah. And so I think most, most composers, a lot of composers have uh, a, a box or, or a shelf or a file cabinet or wherever, uh, full of unperformed music uh and and i don't that may have been it i don't know i in, in any case the point is i i just kind of lost interest for a while in in composing and i thought well now what i'm going to do and it occurred to me that maybe um maybe i should go back to really getting serious about piano and see if i could get um better at that and so i uh i used some um professional development funds that I got from the college and um, started taking some lessons from, from one of my colleagues who was an amazing pianist, um, Danius Vysokonis. I don't know if you remember him. But uh, anyway, uh, it, was, uh, it was kind of a revelation that uh, I think I, after all those years, even in college, practicing three or four hours a day, that I had never really practiced well. Uh, teachers always tell you you must you must uh, practice slowly and accurately, very very slowly. And I I, I think that I did never really had the patience to do that. Uh, it 
uh, you know how it is. It's, it's not fun doing that. And I think for years, I would just sit down and play from beginning to end and make the same mistakes for hours a day. <laughs> um, uh, but this time, it, and it's the thing is, teachers always tell you that, right? You have to, you have to practice slowly. Uh, and years to sink in. It does, it, and sometimes it never does. Uh, and I think it never did until this second time around. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, I like to tell the story of, of, of learning how to hit a ball. Uh, the, the, the coach always just says, keep your eye on the ball. But after you hear that a couple of times, three times, it, you don't really hear it. And so you never really do it. And I think it might be the same thing with the practicing slowly thing. Uh, it wasn't until this time around I finally went, oh, they mean practice slowly. <laughs> and, and I found uh, that it actually worked. And so I, I actually, um, I, I really felt like that I improved quite a bit um, in, uh, in ways that I never really had the first go round, mm -hmm. like when I was young. <laughs> And how many how many years did you kind of dive deep into it, that? I think for about seven or eight years. Um, I don't. Um, I, I'm sad to say I don't. I don't do that that much now anymore. Partly because uh, I've gotten so much work in the in the ballet world. I'm sitting at a piano four or five hours a day anyway. Um, so it's kind of hard to get motivated to sit back down even for an hour and woodshed something. Yeah. Um, and you'd already been playing for classes for many years at that point um, when you were practicing. Did it That's affect, right. Did it affect your confidence at all in in those classes? Um, I, I don't know if my the sensation is affecting confidence. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe confidence. Uh, but I do know for sure that um, I got a boost, a big boost in terms of being able to play what was coming into my head and there's mm -hmm. a there's a there's a state and and i think you you it, this is hard to describe but i think if you talk to improvisers like jazz musicians and i'm not a jazz musician but i think if you talk to people there's a there's a state that you can get in whereas a, there's a place in your brain where if you just kind of manage to get there and kind of sit there and watch um it happens almost automatically it's not, I mean, if you try to think about it, you lose it. And it's a kind of thing where you just have to kind of listen and enjoy the ride uh, because you almost don't have control over it. And it's almost, it, it's similar to that sensation of peripheral vision mm -hmm. or, or you see in the dark, you maybe see something in the dark and you don't, and if you look directly at it, you lose it. Uh, but if you see, you can see it out of the corner of your eye or trying to remember a dream. That, that kind of thing, right? If you, if you just kind of let it go, trying to remember somebody's name. <laughs> if you just like let it go, it'll pop into your head. But if you try to think about it, it, it gets further away. But so, so your question, I'm sorry, was, uh, and you may have to edit all of this. <laughs> the, the question was, did it, did it affect my confidence? Yeah, it, it really did. And I, and I do feel like I guess I felt like this for a long time, but even more so after all of that experience is that I, I, I could walk into a studio with Barishnikov and I'd be completely relaxed. Amazing. I wish I could do that. <laughs> well, you can do other things. <laughs> you're, you're quite the fiddle player. Thank you.
And having gone through that period of dedicated practice, what would you want your students to know about practicing and or learning, um, especially those that maybe are coming to it a bit later? Uh, actually, I think that's a very short answer. Uh, I'd like to let my students know that practicing correctly works, uh, that, that you actually can get better. Um, I think there's a, a common misconception amongst people, especially people who aren't musicians, um, that people who do it very well were somehow born with it. Um, and it is, uh, I, I don't know if in a way that's an excuse for not trying something. It's like, well, so-and-so mm -hmm. is really good at that. Uh, I'll never be that good, so I'm not gonna try. Uh, the, the fact is, um, I suppose there is such a thing as sort of having a natural um, affinity for rhythm or, or, or what, whatever that might be. Uh, but people who are really good really worked hard at it. And um, you, can, you can say what you want. I mean, I, so I work with, with music technology students, people who are interested in being recording engineers. <clears throat> but many of them seem to be really snobby about the kind of music they like and about the kind of music they don't like. Uh, and, and I will tell those guys, and they're mostly guys, it's like, look, um, first of all, if you wanna be successful, you have to be really open-minded because you gotta be able to take the business that comes your way. Second of all, uh, you can laugh at Taylor Swift or you can laugh at Miley Cyrus or whoever it is that you look your, down your nose at, but those people work their asses off. You, you are not productive if you don't work. It doesn't just happen. And, uh, and uh, I, you know, I, t I talk a lot about that with, uh, with students, is that if you want to be good at something, you have to want it so bad that you're willing to work at it every day. And now I don't even remember what the question was. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> that's a perfect message to send out to your students. Um, can you talk a little bit about experimenting and improvising and how that relationship has changed throughout your life? Obviously, it's something that really resonates with you and is vital to composing. Um, I don't think that I'm a particularly adventurous improviser, uh, except maybe when I'm just kind of sitting around at my own piano after dinner, just playing around for my own amusement. Um, partly because in the in the ballet world, like, as I mentioned, everything has to be really structured. It has to be structured in a, in a way that is comprehensible to the dancers right they have to they have to they have to be able to hear how the phrases go and so I you can't just have a 10 bar phrase and then a seven bar phrase and it, it, everything has to be very um, what I think has happened though uh, and this this continues to grow over the years is the is being able to apply the theory that I teach in, in my improvisation. So, I mean, I remember when I first started, everything was just sort of one, four, five. And uh, the most important thing is the rhythm um, for the dancers, but you still have to make it, again, you have to make it make sense. Uh, but then over the years, I've managed to, to, to oh, oh, this would be a good place to start using some, some, uh, some inversions. Oh, uh, secondary, I can approach this with a secondary dominant. That makes it sound a lot more interesting. And then, wow, uh, Neapolitan, that works all over the place. Uh, so 
so in, in, in that way, it has, I mean, so my, my teaching life and my, my playing life have pretty much bonded uh, because, because when I'm, tr I'm introducing those ideas to, to students who are hearing them for the first time, it's easy for me to sit down and demonstrate them because I use them every day. They're just, they're not abstract concepts. They're, they're, they're real things that work and, and that are usable. That's, yeah, that's great. And I remember years ago you telling us, sit down at the piano, try it out, play it. <laughs> try it out. It's the only thing. It's like, yeah, it's almost like you have to, you have to hear it and feel it. Yeah. Yeah. I am guilty of maybe not doing that as much as I should have. Well, again, you're a, you're a, I can't even imagine. Uh, I'm going to, you don't, you don't have to use this story, but it, it, so for for a number of years, I played with a with a kind of a comedy bluegrass band at the Puyallup Fair. I played keyboard with them, uh, but anyway, there was one shtick that we did where I had to play Happy Trails on fiddle. Um, that was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. Just even holding the thing is so awkward, you know. And I don't know how anybody. Uh, you, you know, I don't know how big your fingers are, <laughs> but uh, it's just there's so little room on that little fingerboard. Uh, I just don't know how, any, how anybody does it. One of, the, one of my teachers in, in my first composition teacher in college was a, a fairly well-known violinist in, in sort of modern, in, in circles of, of new music. Uh, in any case, uh, his name was Robert Gross. He... he uh, he had the biggest ham, ham-sized hands and fingers. I don't know how he ever played the violin. And so anyway, uh, people have different strokes for different <laughs> folks, right? Uh, yeah, so, but I, so I completely support your, um, your necessary, not necessarily, um, not necessarily an affinity for the keyboard because you have, you have other skills. Small hands. I'm always surprised yes. as well. Some of the some of the greats uh, have sausage fingers. Yeah. It's just yeah. Hard. How does how does that even work? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think they get think, especially built violins. No, I think fifths are probably the only thing that that gives you an advantage in. Right, because you can do it with one finger, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I've got some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? Yeah, lightning round. Okay. Yes. I am currently learning blank. Oh, that's the question. <laughs> I'm currently learning um, how to teach online, actually. Very relevant. <laughs> A musician is blank. Uh, well, I think... A musician is mostly a musician, uh, as opposed to, I mean, a musician is somebody who's for whom that is the most important thing, I suppose. But I will also say this, all the really good musicians I've ever known have also been very nice people and incredibly funny. Humor and kindness, two things you yes. can't have enough of. That exactly. A song, piece, or artist I've been loving at the moment is? 
I take, uh, I'm sorry, this is not going to be a rapid fire answer. I, I take a six mile walk every morning and I've been um, listening to Spotify and uh, uh, I've been, I've been hearing all kinds of uh, interesting music. Uh, there's a, there's a jazz pianist name who goes by Eldar. His name is Eldar Jangarov, uh, incredible pianist. Uh, I've been listening to covers by Annie Lennox. Um, <laughs> uh, all, yeah, all, all kinds of just just kind of a weird mix of of stuff. Uh, okay, I'll I'll go with those two. What instrument do you wish you could play? Cello. Cello. That's a popular one. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think it's a it, it's it's a, it's a pleasant range. Yeah. Uh, it just it's it can be a, it can be a very lovely sound. Which album or composition do you wish you'd written? Obviously, you've written quite a lot, but... Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of pieces I wish I'd written. Uh, Rite of Spring comes to mind. Uh, uh, Appalachian Spring comes to mind. I don't know if it's just spring, uh, but th those are a couple of pieces that I've always wished I'd written. There have been, um, I've also sort of uh, discovered Eric Whitaker, who is a... Uh, a young choral composer. Uh, there's a lot of his stuff that I kind of wish I'd written. Where in your home do you feel most inspired? <laughs> right now, uh, the kitchen. I'm doing a lot of cooking. What have you been cooking? <laughs> what have I been cooking? Uh, dinner. Uh, we <laughs> we fend for ourselves each. You know, it's every everyone everyone for themselves around here except for dinner. Uh, uh, I do a pretty good chicken enchiladas. Mm, I could go for that. <laughs> uh, something you wish teachers knew. Oh, are we talking about new teachers? I gotta say something. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> I have to say something because I'm listening through the wall. But I think one of the things that he's missing here is that when he makes dinner, it has to be presented very nicely. So, in order to do that, like, we're, we're, we don't have a we're lot being, of money, we're being... but we spend it on these gorgeous dishes because he's all about aesthetic and presentation, presentation. and I think it kind of goes to his musicianship, that it's about feeling something and like, taking something away. So, there you go. I we, can't hear you because he's got headphones on. We, we, just got pod, we just got podcast bombed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm sorry, uh, where, where were we? Something that you wish teachers knew. Old teachers, new teachers. Yeah, um, I, I think good teachers know this, um, but I think it bears saying out loud is that the, the, the students who take the most from your classes are almost never the ones that you think they are. Uh, I over over the years, uh, every once in a while, I get a I get a message from somebody who was in my class years ago, and they're you know like, man, I I learned so much in your class, and I was a I was a I was a screw up at the time, but now I you know I really appreciate, it. and sometimes it's not even somebody I remember. Uh, so that's that's it. Is that so that everybody everybody in your classes can potentially learn stuff, even the ones that you don't even, mm. you know, it's not always the obvious ones. It's very hard to see engagement. 
Mm-hmm. You can't really spot it. Uh, last one. You've just finished a concert and it's gone spectacularly well. What is your post-concert celebration meal? Meal? <laughs> is that what you said? <laughs> wow. Well, it would have to include at least one Manhattan. Uh, and, uh, you know, what comes right to mind is something involving clams. Can't tell you why. <laughs> what an interest, what an interesting question. I wouldn't have expected that, but, uh, I will admit to you that it would definitely involve alcohol. So, um, <laughs> perfect. And very last question, where can people find you? Well, it so happens that just, just, uh, just recently, uh, recordings of four of my choral pieces were um, released by uh, Tudor Choir, which is a, a professional choir here in Seattle. And uh, you can find those on Spotify and you can find them on uh, Pandora. And I think, I think you can find it on iTunes also. Otherwise, um, I'm, I'm, recently, I'm recently on Facebook. Um, so uh, you can find me there. Perfect. <laughs> Well, Dr. J, thank you so much for talking with me and for being my theory teacher. Both have been well, great. It's been so nice to reconnect with you. I, I, I really appreciate it. And um, uh, stay in touch. Of course. Okay.